Hello, listeners. I'm Dr. Kim Ozano, the host of the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast, where we discuss how researchers and scientists can come together with communities and people to solve global health challenges. We are really exploring something interesting today, the intersection between art, history, and science. We will be hearing more about the importance of using art scientists to connect with people so that they can access science and research more readily. To help us explore this science communication a little bit more, we have co-host Ellie Wright from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. She is the public engagement manager and she has a real passion for science communication. We also have three amazing and very interesting guests. Mark Ruffley, who is a senior lecturer in 3D digital art at Liverpool School of Art. He is trained as a medical artist and he specializes in visualizing anatomy through 3D data acquisition, modeling, and fabrication. We also have two Psy artists, a terminology we'll be hearing about. One is Natasha Neithammer, who has a special interest in science and art activism and public outreach in microbiology and antimicrobial resistance. We also have Tom Hyatt, who is a polymathic artist, a musician, a scientist, an educator, and a maker. Ellie, welcome to the podcast as a co-host. Tell us about your work and why do we need this intersection between art, history, and science? Hello to the listeners. I am Public Engagement Manager at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine with a background in microbiology. Effective science communication can really connect people and communities with research. Science communicators and public engagement professionals want to reduce the elitism um, built into society with regards to who is allowed to access scientific knowledge. Science belongs to all of us. And for these reasons, this is why effective science communication is so important. And there are many ways that science can be communicated to the diverse and heterogeneous public audience, including through art. So it's a great opportunity for scientists to work with sci-artists like Mark, Natasha and Tom, tell the story of their science to the public. Thanks very much, Ellie. One of the things I keep hearing in lots of the different uh, circles that I move in, in relation to science and research, is that COVID was a, the first time we saw whole populations across the world really engaged in science in a way that they hadn't been before, but also a lot of distrust because of misinformation or disinformation. So I'd be curious to see, did COVID-19 change the environment around science communication? It certainly did, Kim. Yes. Um, it kind of showed scientists that they needed to communicate their work effectively, clearly, make science available and accessible to them. Yeah, and I think as we try to increase the trust in science again post-COVID, it's really important that we learn communication skills that are relevant and, and interesting, I think, for the public as well. So our guests today have expertise in that area. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Mark, what is a sci artist? How do you become one? Tell us a bit about what you do and why this is important to increase our trust in science. Uh, thank you, Kim. It's, it's nice to be invited to, to speak with you all today. That term PSYOP, people might see more commonly on a hashtag on social media. And that really is kind of where it developed and emerged from. But actually, before that hashtag or that term even existed, um, there were quite a lot of prominent art science initiatives in the kind of late 90s, early 2000s. So 
one from the Wellcome Trust, which was their Sci Art project that ran for a number of years, and then even um, the Arts at CERN program. So CERN being the European Organization for Nuclear Research in Switzerland, the kind of arts-based arts initiative that's been going for a number of years allow people to encounter art and science in different ways. And it's led to the kind of emergence of a larger number of innovative art science projects. So I think maybe it's worth to say when we talk about science, we might be talking about STEM subjects, such as science, technology, engineering, and maths more generally. And then art is kind of placed within that umbrella. Um, but the COVID pandemic is a great example of how people were flooded with illustrations of microbiology, of health information in a way that we've never done before. You mentioned that kind of social diffusion of information through communities, um, almost like a vaccine spreading through populations. Um, that's a great affordance of this visual medium in this specific circumstance to communicate that science to something wider. That helps uh, situate it. Ellie, you're situated at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine as a science communication expert. So I'll leave you to take over this conversation to demonstrate to our listeners how these different disciplines come together. Thank you, Kim. Mark, just to follow on from what you've just said, a lot of our scientists at LSTM might say they aren't creative. They feel that they maybe can't connect with SciArt. Can you dispel that myth? It's almost the conversation I have with my foundation year art and design students when they say they can't draw. We can all, we can all draw in some way and we can all engage in creative activity. It's having that openness and that willingness to engage with some of that. And what we don't want people to do is then think, oh, I, I'm not able to contribute to a discussion because I'm not creative. When actually there are many ways you can do that. Some of the things that scientists do, taking microbiology, for example, looking through a microscope and generating beautiful visualizations of something on a very different scale to the way we see the world, that is a creative process. So I think there's a kind of a, a hesitance on people to acknowledge that. Um, but I think once that hurdle has been jumped, there's an ability then for us to really think creatively across disciplines. This kind of also leads then on for a question for Tom and Natasha, really, as they've been conversing with scientists at LSTM. They've been working on a project with us on LSTM past, present and future, which is a heritage lottery funded project. How have you both been liaising with the scientists at LSTM? What have you learned from collaborating with them and co-creating your science intervention project? First of all, I suppose we should say what we've been doing as a project. Um, so we've been meeting with researchers to interview them. A little bit about their work, researchers from right across LSTM, uh, in order to create a tropical medicine time machine, which it encompasses the length and breadth of LSTM's 125 year history. Natasha, do you want to say anything about how those meetings have gone? It's been really important to establish that trust, being able to work with all these amazing scientists at LSTM from the get go. Trust and being open to ideas is really important because as, um, as a collaboration, you need to make sure that you can be creative with each other and open to new ideas since what you're doing is something that's never been done before and relies on both of your previous experience and expertise. And so in these discussion with LSTM scientists, it's been um, incredible to explore that initial trust and then 
working together to be playful because um, being playful is part of that creative process. And um, to those scientists that question their ability to be creative, it's like Mark said, scientists are some of the most creative people I know because they're continuously thinking of new ideas and new adaptations to their research projects to pursue. That's the same thing that artists are doing as well. I think um, both artists and scientists have a lot to discuss and learn from each other and grow together to uh, create something that's never been done before and to connect with people in a way that is really exciting and more accessible and interactive. Thank you, Natasha. Um, you're right. When you see the scientists engaging with both you and Tom, it is superb. It's lovely to see how they become engaged with your practice. They begin to think more playfully. Keeping with that theme of trust, can you perhaps share an example of how trust is improved by using SciArt practices? I think um, where trust is a kind of key issue in terms of scientific visualization or scientific illustration always kind of centers back to dissemination of health information to the wider public. And there's quite a few research studies that have proven that there is an effective use of the arts to raise awareness and change behaviors in those circumstances. That's really interesting on the trust. And I think, you know, getting scientists to get out of their comfort zones. And I love this idea of playfulness as well. It sounds like science and art can also be data collection in a method itself. You're saying it collects people's stories and it's about understanding, you know, lived realities. So it would be nice to hear a little bit more about that side of things rather than just presenting research how you can engage earlier on in the research and science process i sort of have this personal worldview about how art and science fit together which is that they are distinct disciplines with different aims engaging in art you're effectively are trying to find out how humans work and engaging in science more at least as a pure idea is trying to find out how the external world works um, and of course those two things cross over a great deal so you have to incorporate both sets of methods if you want to find out things. So you talk about working with, with people and communities. Um, we've talked a lot about that artist-scientist relationship, but the publics more generally are the ones that are affected by all of these um, kind of interventions. And we were talking off uh, earlier about this kind of cooperative, co-creative approach. And so we call this arts-based practice research. And those things are really fantastic to see embedding more in kind of science outreach activities where sometimes dance or photography or painting or drawing can be used as part of a data collection method for sure. Um, but they can also promote a dialogue between stakeholders, not based on certain assumptions. So between a patient and a doctor, for example, um, and especially within those health-based experiences, there's an opportunity to interrogate and then integrate patient personal stories or lived experiences into healing or treatment or arts-based interventions, whatever those um, might be. The best people for that is, is children. Children are great to work with in public engagement and outreach activities because they are sponges and then they go and diffuse all that information as much as possible to the world around them. They experience the world very differently to us as adults. And that's really exciting because they are the, often the ones who will make creative responses to something because they have unconventional viewpoints and they are really ready to share those ideas. A great phrase. I don't know if it is my dad's, but I do attribute it to my dad right now. Um, he's John Hyatt. He's an artist and scientist too. 
um, is this idea of being childlike, but not childish in situations. And it brings us back to this idea of uh, creative play. I think children are fantastic at playing and letting go of any inhibitions or they don't have them in the first place. It's through that play and, and not being self-conscious and worrying about your identity as a scientist or an artist or whatever, that progress can be made in either discipline. And I think our conversations with researchers the last few months have been a kind of environment in which you can see people loosen up to the idea of playing with their disciplines and coming up with ideas that might be engaging to the public. Childlike, not childish. And that kind of extends like how we engage with people as well, how we do that playful investigation and even that gamification of, of science or health information as Natasha has done um, in her own research and practice led research can really promote more than simply reading a leaflet on something. Oh, Natasha, gamification. What is this? Gamification is taking a concept that may be abstract, hard to understand. You know, when you go to the doctor's office or you like listen to a lecture and your eyes glaze over and you're like, okay, like this is important, but um, I don't really feel engaged. And you take the elements that are utilized in games to basically capture your attention and engage with you, such as giving you options or, you know, integrating elements like music or visuals and giving you rewards for what you do. Um, in my own practice, I created a game called Bacteria the Future, um, a reference to Back to the Future, where you become a bacteria and you travel back in time. So it's all about time travel. I love science fiction. And so that hence the uh, integration of time travel into the LSTM tropical medicine time machine. Um, I think it's engaging. And the world does, too, because we have so many um, incredible sci-fi uh, TV shows. Uh, but getting back to gamification people get out of work and then they play games, they watch TV shows, which include these interactive choice-based mechanisms. And so in public engagement realm, in the science realm, especially when dealing with something that LSTM deals with, that global health concerns and bringing awareness to global health concerns to not only bring in funding, but also increasing awareness in the public drives further funding because they'll get the attention of local policymakers and they'll vote. And um, public engagement is so important to those that are studying global health crisis. But it, it is a tough, heavy, abstract field. And so gamification is showing a lot of promise to connect to the public, especially in microbiology, where um, invisible abstraction is the norm. Uh, and by making it a game, by making it fun, um, where you're the bacteria in my game um, and you're able to choose your name and choose your adventure through the gut and you're able to be in the gut and experience it. And that type of story is one that integrates gamification to engage. Amazing. I want to play this game. Thank you for all your insights. I think this is a really good point to get some advice from you on how those that are interested in engaging with science and art how they might go about it. Let's start with Tom, some advice. I think the main barrier to either an artist working with science or a scientist working with art is the preconception that the identity of being an artist or a scientist excludes them from that other discipline. Um, I don't think there's that great a difference between the two 
And I think the two disciplines have techniques and methods that can help either one. So my advice to both groups would be to rid yourself of preconception that it's not for you. doesn't matter what your experience at school was like or what you spent most of your life doing. Everyone has that capacity to play and in doing so might further their own aims, whatever they may be. Excellent. Release your identity and begin to play. Natasha, piece of advice, please. I want to emphasize, like Tom said, being open to these conversations. And obviously, if you had, you know, a bad experience with one artist or one scientist, it doesn't define all artists and scientists. They exist on a spectrum. I consider myself both an artist and scientist. And people say, oh, but you're more a scientist because, you know, you got a degree in microbiology or you're more an artist because... We're so playful with our ideas together, says the fine artist. Um, but really, they both go hand in hand. And I've experienced um, so much fun with with both incredibly creative expertises. Excellent. Be open and join hands so that you can learn from each other. Mark? I'll pick up on what Tom just said there about almost those labels and actually what my students tend to find when they enter the art and science program, regardless of the discipline the label often changes. So at some point they will see themselves more of an artist and more of a scientist. And it's interesting for me to see at what point they stop calling themselves one or the other and they become this kind of art science practitioner um, along their um, postgraduate research journey. I'm going to end with some kind of like a questioning sort of thing for you all. We pose two questions to our students when they first arrive and it's around kind of process. So we ask, do scientists work to develop solutions for problems that should be testable and repeatable by others in order to be considered true? And do artists work to invent problems that only they can solve, but in doing so reveal particular truths? Those are just statements. They're not saying that's a fact, but what's kind of common to both of those processes, what's common to both of those statements is process. And that process produces different knowledge of different kinds and in new ways. And it's really hoped that um, the art science collaborations do really contribute to our understanding of ourselves and the world around us. Beautiful. Thank you very much. And Ellie, a take-home message. Thank you, Kim. Um, take-home message. I guess this is to people who would label themselves as a scientist. Um, work with people from other disciplines like artists, storytellers, musicians. They might help you communicate your science in a different way. That's playful and engaging to audiences out there. Um, so thank you. Thank you very much. I will definitely take home this concept of play. I think that's so important and something we've not covered before. So thank you, everyone. Thank you to our listeners again for joining us in this episode. Do like, rate, share and subscribe so we can continue to bring these interesting conversations of how we can better connect with people and communities so that we can address the challenges together. Thank you for now. Bye, everyone.